Hello and welcome to the Tech Map Podcast with me, Andy Barjuri. Now, today's show is a little bit different to the usual in that we're looking at the business of marketing rather than marketing itself. And more specifically, how do we create high performing teams, whether that's an agency team or an in-house marketing team? And one of the big issues that we see in the marketing industry is stress and uh, stress and building personal resilience to stress is one of those key challenges that I've seen within my lifetime in an agency environment but also the challenge is related to culture and how you can uh, create a culture of high performance when you're in an environment that's got a lot of stress. So to look at those issues and, and what that means for building effective teams I invited a chap called Gary Cole who runs a coaching business called Archipelago to come onto the show and to talk to me about how do you build a high performance team how do you manage stress how do you build up resilience to stress how do you build a culture of high performance and commitment and it's a really interesting conversation at least I feel so anyway I hope that you find this different take on marketing interesting and if you do let me know leave me a review send me some feedback we'd love to find out if you want to hear more about the business of marketing rather than marketing itself Um, but in the meantime I hope you enjoyed the show I hope you get something out of this and uh, let's get on with it Gary, how's it going? Hi there, Andy. Very good, thank you. Very good. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome to the TechMap podcast. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Um, so look, just to briefly introduce myself, my name is uh, Gary Cole. I own and run a, a small coaching practice called Archipelago Coaching. Uh, mainly work at, well, mainly work in the media industry, uh, mainly as a, a quirk of my own career, uh, previous to becoming a coach. So uh, we work for a third of our clients are actually client clients. And a third of our clients are agencies, whether that's media agencies, advertising agencies, creative agencies, uh, and a third are kind of media owners. So we've got a really lovely spread um, across the industry, actually. Ah, fantastic. Fantastic. So the reason why I wanted to get you onto the show, Gary, because we've worked together for a number of years now, but the reason, I guess there's two things I want to explore with you. One is you know, in the the marketing and, and media world, if you work in that area for a while, it's quite a high pressure environment. It's quite a high stress environment. And I wanted to look at, you know, what can we do as marketeers or agency owners to to look at stress and, you know, building personal resilience so that we have, uh, you know, longevity in our careers and healthy, enjoyable careers. Um, and then I guess building on the back of that, I really want to explore the idea of culture because one of the things that we're talking about at the moment a lot with our partners and clients is the idea that culture, certainly if you're in a, an agency environment, culture is a big way of creating an environment where you're going to have a happy team, happy employees, and that will translate into good service and a successful agency. And I think those two topic there, topics there are really interrelated. And I think that you are somewhat of an expert in those areas in terms of the coaching that you provide to your clients. So, so that's kind of the, the, the background as to why I wanted to get you on here. And hopefully that makes sense. And, and those are two areas that you know a bit about. Absolutely. I'm happy to help. I probably, I would say when some people think of coaching, they immediately make the assumption that it's one-to-one executive coaching. And of course, we do a lot of work in that, in that space. But most of the projects... We, we work on are actually larger scale organizational um, projects and and on culture. So um, I'm a qualified team coach as well. And mo- so most of the bigger projects we run are actually 
ostensibly around company culture, whether that's in a small business or a larger corporation. So uh, I like to feel I've got my finger on the pulse a little bit when it comes to this kind of thing. Excellent. Good, good, good. Um, I've got the right guy for the job then, which is encouraging. <laughs> so why don't we kick off by talking about uh, stress and stress awareness, because that is a big issue in our industry for marketeers. To, we are working quite a high pressure environment. So what does, that, what does that mean to you? What does stress mean to you, Gary? What do you see in terms of your clients and clientele? How are they affected by stress? I would say that... Um... I've been running Archipelago for seven years now, and I even in that short time frame, I think that I, I've noticed that the problem has, has become worse, actually. And I think, um, on the plus side, I think that there are a few what we call environmental factors, so things like the royal family um, kind of backing and uh, the fact that they've had sort of mental health challenges themselves and various sporting stars have come out. And I think all of that, it's made stress a bigger part of the convers- like our conversations, which I think is a very good thing. Um, the downside is that perhaps people aren't or companies aren't enabling or helping individuals and teams to really equip themselves with it. But it's a big problem. And, you know, it kind of makes me slightly smirk, but also kind of frustrates me in equal measure that some boards of directors or some management teams classify stress as the soft stuff. Um, but I can add, bag bag loads of insight and evidence out there that will, will suggest that if, if, a, if an individual or a team or a company is suffering from stress to some degree or other, it will absolutely equate to business performance and the bottom line. So it's definitely, uh, if I was a CEO of any business, I would probably put it very high on my agenda to to address it proactively. Oh, absolutely. There's no there's no doubt in my mind that stress, you know, it maybe is seen as the soft stuff, but it certainly has an impact on performance, which feeds through to bottom line, no question at all. Um, you know, I've seen that firsthand in running my agency in terms of the impact of stress on my team and what that meant, not just in terms of their performance, but in terms of um, the impact on the rest of the team, the the amount of time that that person that individual was able to commit to working you know attendance for examples hit and miss so it's really obvious when someone's in an environment where they're stressed that that's not just a problem for them it's a problem for everybody within that that organization Um, and I've certainly seen that firsthand so what are the kind of things that I guess as a manager as a leader you can look out for the, the the identifiers that there's somebody in your team that's uh, struggling with or experiencing st- stress that is affecting their ability to perform their job? Sure. Uh, well, I think it's probably just worth saying as well that when people, when every human being is stressed, just in really simple physiological terms, oxygenated blood leaves our head and goes to our arms so we can potentially have a fight or in our legs so we can potentially flight or run away. So um, it's a good thing if you do need to have a fight or run away, but in the workplace environment, except for some very exceptional circumstances, you know, your your life is not really under attack. So logically speaking, you shouldn't really be engaging in survival mode, really, except for the fact that we all do. Um, and I, I, I guess, you know, when, when oxygenated blood leaves our heads, um, in really simple terms, our IQ drops by about 20 points. And I some, sometimes joke with some clients and say not many of us have got 20 points. Of payment <laughs> for That's a big loss. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess so, you know, as, as, a, as a boss, I think, um, you know, I, I think do not underestimate the value in somebody senior 
uh, in the organization, whether that's a line manager, a divisional manager, or the leaders or the CEO themselves coming out and regularly saying that it's something they also struggle with and this is how they deal with it. So making making stress kind of like almost publicizing it, that it's a real thing, it definitely is happening and that, that there are ways to deal with it uh, and there's a toolkit available to every single human being regardless of our job title. I think that's one of the biggest things that I see in, in companies that get it right and companies that get it wrong. So straight off the bat, having somebody that's willing to vocalize their challenges and what they're doing about it, I think is a very big step in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's really important to have that, that certainly from a leadership point of view as well, as to say, look, you're not alone here. We all have issues with stress and this is how we recognize that and how we deal with that. I think that's interesting that if you have that in your culture, whereby the, the senior team is prepared to say, look, this this is an issue we all suffer from. Um, I think that's probably quite unusual. Do you see that much in practice? Absolutely, uh, I do. I um, I think uh, uh, Josh uh, Krzyzewski, uh, Krzyzewski, who's the CEO of Medicom UK, I think if you follow him or are connected to him on LinkedIn, I'd probably say that, most of the posts he writes are connected in some way to mental well-being. Mm, okay. Um, he's very vocal about some of the challenges he has faced and also what he what he now does with it to cope. And I, I think that what that, that has done is it's made, you know, Medicom employees and staff feel like it's almost gives them kind of permission to, to make it a more regular part of normal conversations. And that right there, the, my last comment, is absolutely the gateway between having a culture that makes it acceptable to, to open up and talk about it as opposed to a culture which kind of encourages people to bottle it up and keep quiet about it. That is the biggest driver of neg- you know, getting the stress to a, to a worse place, which is clearly not what you would want in the interest of business performance. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's never a good thing to keep these things uh, bottled up. You know, it's, it's to share is a, is a great thing with when you're trying to get to a, to solve a problem. So what are those kind of key identifiers that you, the, the early signs that someone in your team is suffering from stress? What are the things that people can look out for? Well, I think it, it, look, it, it could just be somebody that's a bit quieter than normal, somebody that's a bit more forgetful. It could be somebody that could be a bit more vocal than normal, i.e. a bit angrier, a bit more emotional. So lots of signs that you can potentially look out for. I would, though, just take pause and perhaps give you a different kind of answer, mm, which okay. is that rather than perhaps looking to solve uh, signals of stress reactively, I think it's essential that perhaps people could embrace the, the, the possibility to be more proactive in dealing with it. Uh, I'll just give you a really small example. Um, I sometimes joke in uh, one of my big passion areas is the lack of one-to-ones or quality one-to-ones in, in organizations. And I, even before I became a coach, when I was a leader, manager myself, I was guilty of having one-to-ones where they were very task-based. So I would often be having one-to-ones where it would be like a holiday rep with a clipboard and you're saying, where are you with this? Where are you with that? Where are you with this? Where are you with that? And it, it feels like the manager is essentially just calling out the individual about where they are against various tasks. Now I know what I know. I think the value in a manager sometimes going into a one-to-one putting the pen down, putting the notepad down, putting that to one side and actually just saying, how are you today? Things have been a bit challenging recently. I just want to check in, hear how you are, hear how I can support you, hear where you're at, where are your concerns? And I think 
rather than trying to equip managers to be kind of like poorly qualified kind of stress experts and reading the signs, you know, do not underestimate the power of just regularly just checking in with another human being saying, how are you and how can I help? And I think that's a far better, a better uh, tactic to deploy rather than doing it reactively, if I'm honest. Do you know, I think that's really strong. And I think that uh, I'm just trying to think back over all the people I've worked with over the years. To, to ask or to think whether anyone's ever actually asked me how are you or also have I ever asked any of my team how are you and having that frank and honest and open and also regular conversation I think is is pretty unusual and I think it's a I think it's a really good way to look at it because you kind of open with that very open question you you leave the conversation open for your employee to to lead I suppose and to to open up with what might be challenging them absolutely and I think I think um, for the vast majority of cases, most of us will be having a slightly negative reaction or relationship with stress. And only in this small amount of cases does that end up leading to mental illness and, and you know, worse versions of, of, of things. But so, so you can catch it early and you can maintain it really, really well in the vast majority of cases simply by having making, making stress part of the normal conversation and literally just checking in with people and asking how they are. If somebody feels like they've got their, somebody has got their back and there's trust goes up, when trust goes up, you feel understood. When you feel understood, the kind of animal primeval part of our brain where the, which experiences fear goes down and the thinking brain, which is what we want to engage in more at work, that gets used more. And that's exactly what this is all about. It's about managers activating that part of our thinking brain more and and dealing with the kind of animal brain a lot less, quite frankly. Mm, okay. All right. So a, a really good um, first tool in our armory, I suppose, and is just to have more and better and open, frank one-to-ones with our team, just to find out, just to do a, almost a regular temperature check as to what's going on here. Are you okay? Step one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. hundred percent. And also, um, <laughs> you know, I wonder how many team meetings actually commence with the manager or the leader saying, right, let's put our pens down and just let's all just go spend one minute each and just just say, how are you? I'd like to know how you are, how you're feeling. Um, that can have a dramatic impact on the, the way even the meeting, the, 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 the task-based part of the meeting will go. But um, So that is something we try to get a lot of our leadership teams to do as well, is actually just kick off a lot of their meetings in that way. That, that's an interesting, I guess, an interesting cultural shift, isn't it? To, to move to an environment where you can have those open conversations. And I think that, uh, you know, let, let's go into culture in a bit. But before we get there, I really want to look at, because I, I think a personal, a, a, an important part of stress is seeing it in yourself, understanding that you're under stress, but then becoming a bit more resilient to it and understanding how to deal with those uh, negative thoughts, emotions or whatever that is, that's, that's, that is your manifestation of your stress. So do you do uh, have much understanding in that space in terms of what can a, an individual do to actually enhance their ability to deal with, cope with stress? Yeah, so probably, probably about a third of the our company income comes from running stress and resilience workshops. We work at places like Facebook, we work at places like Omnicom, Group M with it, um, and I also coach a lot with it as well. And I, But I, I guess to some extent, um, just in the interest of keeping this concise on the podcast, I think you know, there's a really simple model that we like to use called ABC. I mean, you can't get more simple than that. But the, <laughs> can't. the A stands for activating event. B stands for beliefs. 
and C stands for emotional consequences. So if you, the theory here, um, and it can be quite contentious for some people, but bear with me on this, is that there is no event out there that in itself it causes stress directly. So if you take missing a train in the morning to come to work, so that's the activating event. Okay, some people, not, if, if the train being late was the direct cause of stress, everybody on that train platform would experience stress to the same degree um, in, the, in the moment to everybody else. But we just know that that's not true. So some people experience high stress. Some people are actually quite pleased. They're, they're not getting to work on time. So, you know, it, what happens is it must be filtered through our belief system, which is the B in the model. And it's how you filter and per- perceive uh, the activating event is the thing that actually causes your consequences to stress. So if I believe that being late means I'm a bad employee and I'm an underperformer and my boss won't like me, um, that could cause me to have emotional consequences like guilt, shame, anger, frustration, etc. You know, so in simple terms, it's not the event that causes me stress, it's my beliefs that filter my perception of it. So we spend a lot, I think, sometimes it can be quite useful for individuals and managers to really, if you bear that in mind, suddenly the debate and the focus really changes because you're not worrying less about the activating event like high workload and more about your beliefs and your relationship with the high workload because you can change that and you can change that quite easily. Uh, if It does take effort and it can take time, but knowing that you have more power over your stress levels than, than you previously thought i think it can be quite liberating for a lot of people yeah that, that's an interesting perspective on on stress actually is it's much about your belief as it is the actual environment the situation you face so i hadn't thought of it that way before you know you're kind of creating stress for yourself by believing that i've missed the train so i'm a bad employee or it's a busy day i can't get all my work done and that belief that you should get the work done during that day is what's causing you the stress rather than actually perhaps dealing with that before um it becomes an issue Absolutely. And uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Abby Lucas, who's a qualified clinician, she'll, one of the really simple models she likes to use is called the scale of awfulness. So one of the, the classic six unhelpful beliefs that people can experience with stress is, um, is, is awfulizing. So we tend to make things seem more awful than perhaps it really is, you know, i.e. missing the train for work. And so what Abby will often say to, to people is like, how awful do you think it is? You know, if you're if you're on the train platform, um, how awful is it that you're going to that you've just missed your train? And some people will say, well, actually, seventy five percent on the on the scale of zero to one hundred, it's it's really high. And then when you flush it out a bit more and discuss that a bit more with the individual, you know, Abby will quite cleverly point out that actually it's possible for you to see that at all events that happen to you in your life somewhere between a zero percent and four percent. If you could just re re-see or reframe the event through that lens rather than 75%, it can have quite an instant impact on your stress level. So um, we like the scale of awfulness, and I think a lot of our clients quite enjoy it because it's dead simple, it's a little bit fun, and you can use that as a very quick piece of uh, toolkit at the moment, actually, whether it's a, a, a pitch that's gone really badly, wrong at work, or whether it's missing the same, the same rule applies. Yeah, absolutely. And I've used a similar sort of thing for dealing with feelings of anxiety in the past as well. So I guess it's the same sort of scale, isn't it? It's, it's you know, how, how, what, how anxious do you feel about X, Y, and Z? Are you zero to 10? You know, and when you think about it and you actually really think about it, oh, actually, I'm really only a four out of 10. 
oh, actually, it's not that bad, is it? It's only four out of 10. Um, whereas if you can then say, no, you know what, actually, it's a nine out of 10, then you know it's time to take some kind of steps to intervene against that feeling of anxiety. But same with what you're saying here with the scale of awfulness. Yeah, absolutely. But this is where it all comes back to a little bit around the culture. So wouldn't it be great if you could have somebody in your team or even in another team that you could potentially buddy up with and co-coach in a way? And You know, you could say, look, I'm really a bit stressed at the moment. And for somebody just to go and have a, a nice decaf, you know, decaffeinated coffee with uh, in that moment and, and say, just explain your stress levels and just to talk it through a little bit and have somebody say, well, is that your beliefs? What could you do differently? how you know what actions could you try instead and or even just have that conversation either in a team meeting or with your boss in a one-to-one because i can guarantee you one thing if people are experienced experiencing stress and doing nothing about it they will be underperforming and nowhere near their potential which is so as a managerial tactic you would clearly want them to be in a more stress-free mindset all of the time so it, it's one of the most underused and undervalued tactics as a manager leader is to get people back into their performance state really it's amazing more people don't take it more seriously Mm, yeah absolutely I I think I wonder if that's uh, achievable at all levels within an organization because when you're at the top the senior levels for example uh, that might be more difficult to achieve than when you are working your way up through the the managerial ladder I suppose because you perhaps are less inclined to show uh, a weakness or less inclined to show vulnerability Absolutely. And, and I guess shifting that, and this is where the role model potentially comes in, I think, very, very importantly, because if, if you have a, you know, I think Elon Musk famously said, um, everybody should work an 80 hour week. Well, you know, actually, if, if Elon, if you worked at Tesla, I know that they're reported, you know, they have an amazing culture and this kind of thing, but I would contest that a little bit, because if somebody like him is saying, we all need to work 80 hours a week, clearly that kind of dictates what the cult the culture for promotions and um, this kind of thing. So, uh, whereas, you know, I, I do some work at LinkedIn and Josh Graff, the uh, UK CEO, uh, was at an internal conference saying that he thinks it's very important once a week to leave and do, do a hobby. And he was very vocal at saying he leaves and does Pilates on a Monday at 4.30. And he advocates people to do the same. And in the interest of minimizing stress, having a more balanced mindset, you kind of think, well, I think I know where I'd rather work and who I'd rather work for. And, but it, it is important to have that kind of role model potential, I think. Yes, I agree. And I, and I think it, um, Elon Musk and Tesla is a really interesting example. There's a good article in Wired magazine talking about the culture at, uh, uh, at Tesla and, and how really uh, Elon Musk has not necessarily been the easiest person to work for. It's well worthwhile looking at that article, actually, because it shows a culture of uh, not a good culture, actually, not a, not a great place to work and a huge turnover of staff and a huge level of um, staff dissatisfaction. But they still achieved, uh, you know, some significant results. So it's an interesting, diff- very different culture to the kind of environment that I think I would like to work in. But obviously, mm. for, it has worked to some extent for that organization. But we're really we're moving into the world of culture. And it's the second thing I really wanted to talk to you about, because, you know, a lot of the work that I do is with marketing agencies and and having run an agency myself for a number of years, I know one of the key challenges is is culture, not only in terms of attracting and retaining staff, but also creating a, a unique or a differentiated positioning in the marketplace based on your team's culture. So I think it's a really important element of a successful agency. So I'd love to just to explore that a little bit around, you know, how do you, 
how do you create a great culture? How do you create a culture based around performance uh, and, and a culture that encourages your staff to remain committed to your cause, as it were? Because, you know, in marketing, I don't know how long the average tenure of a person in a marketing agency or an in-house role is these days. I know it, was, it used to be a couple of years for a marketeer, but working in agency, I've seen a much higher turnover of staff than two years, kind of every 12 months to 18 months, I think will probably be the average tenure in a, in a in an agency. So it'd be really good to get your take on, you know, what's, how do you create that culture? How do you create a high performing culture? Wow. Yeah. So um, we'll try and keep this short and sweet. <laughs> We've only got three hours in the podcast, Gary. Is that enough time? <laughs> well, we'll carry on at a dinner party, Andy, but we can try and do our best, but Look, I'll probably say this is a very odd thing to kick off with, but think of a metaphor of two sunflowers that, that you plant in the garden at the same time. If you did nothing with those sunflowers, it would still rain, the sun would still, still shine, and both flowers will grow approximately at the same rate. Okay, but Imagine another scenario where, um, and this is Culture is the same. If you make no attempts and you don't feed culture, you don't put structured attempts around culture, it will still develop a life of its own. Okay. But what if with one of those sunflowers, you decided to put some fertilizer on it? You decided to put a piece of bamboo and, and, and tie it up, you know, and the other one you just left uncared for and didn't put any attempts around it. The one on the right hand side that you'd fed and you put some structure around would grow, one would hope, a lot higher and develop a lot stronger. And it would perform better. And I think really sometimes at a simple level, that's all culture is. It will happen anyway. Um, you know, so culture is sort of really defined really is, is how people behave when nobody is looking or the worst behaviors you are willing to tolerate. So a very earthy way of thinking about it. So I'll contrast that with um, a great source or a, a great business kind of academic called David Clutterbug. He kind of says that uh, leadership in a business can have up to a 70% impact on the culture and the culture can have up to a 30% impact on results. So I sometimes say to my clients who think it's the soft stuff, I sometimes say, well, you know, think about, think if you were just competing against one of your either direct competitors or indirect, indirect people that you compete against in your, in your marketplace if, if one of those competitors do put structured attempts around their culture and you do not, you are starting every day at a minus 30% handicap, which, which may not be statistically correct, if I'm honest, but I think in, indicatively it is correct, which is that it, it does rep, cult, getting culture right, right does represent one of the great competitive advantages of our current era. So it is madness not to put some structured attempts around it, mm. especially when all of the things that do work that do transform, don't cost money, take little time, just take a bit of effort. There's no need to reach for the capital expenditure pot when it comes to culture. (laughs) I can hear lots of ears pricking up, people getting excited. Okay, so I can do this without spending a lot of money. That's great. Um, And I think it's, I love that about the um, the culture can have a 30% impact on results. So you've got a 30% handicap if you don't actually address that or do something about it that that's the kind of number that would make you think and it would be great to see uh, the the stats the research behind that information that'd be great but i can look that up and share that in the show notes but so so if it is so important um what are those simple things that aren't going to cost a lot of money that will have a, a dramatic impact 
well, not necessarily dramatic, but what are the quick wins in terms of your, if you're running an agency or you're running a, a department even within a, a larger organization and you want to start to look at the culture of performance within that uh, business unit, shall we call it, what are the kind of first things you can start to look at? What are the, the quick wins? If I'm, I'll, I'll back myself here and, and really just say that I think there is the easiest win uh, in terms of uh, you know, an easy next step for anybody listening to this podcast is think of a triangle. And most people have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for instance. So the example I will give you now is similar to that, whereby you've kind of got three building blocks. So at the very bottom building block, you've got emotional needs. So every human being has the need, nine human needs, but there are four or five that we really strongly feel that we need. Okay, If those needs are not being met, there is no, it's very difficult for people to get to the next level, which is peak motivation, which is quintessentially defined as I will do whatever it takes, as opposed to I will try my best, which, um, you know, you don't often hear a pilot say, I will try my best, for example. Thank goodness for that. Um, <laughs> so, and, then, and then, of course, the top tier, the top thing is financial incentives. So it drives me absolutely mad that so many companies I work with do have financial incentives or bonuses or other things in place and they are throwing money at human beings and yet they haven't addressed the emotional needs they're not making structured attempts at a company level to fulfill people's emotional needs so you may as well be throwing that money down the drain because it won't be having any impact on people's motivational levels so there are nine actually there are nine but i'll just for this podcast i'll share four which is to people actually need to feel very safe and to feel status. So safety and status is a, is a really big one. Another one is control or choice or perceived choice, which is a really big one. Another one is feeling valued. And, and, and the lastly, the fourth one is feeling, um, feeling part of a team or i.e. your local team, your division, or the, even the whole company. If all four of those needs are met, you stand a chance of getting everybody into the I will do whatever it takes mindset. Um, and I mean, I'll just give you a couple mm. of examples that, you know, you've got kind of what I would call a micro example, which is I mentioned about the one to one earlier. Imagine if uh, you said to somebody that works for you, listen, it's your choice how you spend this one to one. It's your choice. It's your time. It's your big window of the week. I'm just here to help you. Um, and then five minutes toward the end of the one to one, you happen to say, look, I've just got a couple of extra things I'd like to chalk off with you. That's a very different, but that gives the sensation to the to the employee that it's their choice how they go about the one-to-one, as opposed to having limited or zero choice with the uh, the boss kind of essentially asking them where they are with various work projects. So even small things like that can make a big difference about people's perception of do they have a choice or do they not. Feeling valued is, is spectacularly we are spectacularly woeful at giving people praise proper praise in the especially in our country i think um and sometimes saying well done is not enough sometimes people need to hear specifically really why you're saying well done what what, what actually you know what 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 made the achievement happen and that can really hit the bullseye um safety and status you, it's just little things like delegating and really empowering people bigging people up publicly or, or backing them publicly that I'm just giving George this great project or I've just delegated Sue this amazing pitch to just run on her on her own you know giving people status is a big thing uh, and also being part of a team and 
this doesn't always have to mean going down the pub, um, which, I, you know, it, 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 it's, it's the really simple things inside an office, like how do you solve a problem as a team? How do you, how do you give recognition as a team? How do you overcome negative bumps as a team? There's lots of ways you can form being part of a team rather than just running off to the pub, actually. That should be the last resort. <laughs> yeah, do, um, do you know but, what? That's a bit of a bugbear of mine because I've worked in lots of agencies in the past and uh, quite often the, the response to any kind of uh, success or any kind of, well, success is different, but any kind of team building drive, so let's all go to the pub. And that's great when you're quite young in your career because you want to go to the pub. Uh, and after a few years, you're like, like I've, I've been to the pub a lot. <laughs> I don't really need to, to have another 10 pints of lager to, to build a better team with you guys. Can we do something else? But you always revert back to that standard baseline of, well, let's go and have some drinks. Maybe that's a very British thing. I'm not really sure. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, I think, a very cheap and ineffective way of creating a team. It, exactly. But it's, it's very limited, actually, going to the pub for lots of reasons. But that's not how to form a culture. And actually, you can become part more, you can f- help people feel more part of the team and that, that emotional need is being met by working differently as a team inside the company. That doesn't have to re- require um, money or booze to, to do that. Um, but I would say, so emotional needs for me are like the, it's just like it, I hold my head on my hands thinking, why why do companies not take this stuff more seriously because that is what gets people into peak motivation and if they're there they're going to get better results so that's definitely one aspect of it um well i like i like that because you know as you mentioned at the very start of that piece there is that everybody knows maslow's hierarchy of needs and they understand that so to apply that same kind of methodology to looking at culture is really interesting and i think those emotional needs there what's really interesting there is it it really ties back into what we were talking about earlier in terms of stress awareness and personal resilience as well doesn't it in terms of you know those are certainly key things that will cause stress if you haven't got those emotional needs satisfied as well so the two really are intertwined very tightly aren't they a hundred percent and i think if anybody uh, ends up feeling a little bit low or perhaps a little bit depressed and if they did do go and see a therapist. One of the one of the first things that a, mo- a therapist could do or should do is is get you, somebody to identify which of their emotional needs are not being met and just simply fill it uh, because it returns you back into a happier place. So, and, but the same rules apply in a company. <laughs> Don't wait until they're unfulfilled before you f- fulfil them. Have a structured attempt at fulfilling them all of the time. Um, it's pretty simple. Simple to think about, but perhaps not so easy to achieve. But okay, so step one then is to have a look at that um, that, that hierarchy there. What's step two then? So you've you've looked at your emotional needs, you've mapped out what you can do to change those. What else? What, what's the next step in your um, Gary's method for developing culture? <laughs> <laughs> so I would probably so think of them less as steps and more just as ing- total ingredients of a of a cake. Okay, good, really. good. I like you, that. Uh, so, uh, I would, I'd say so. One of my favourite books of the moment is a book called "The Barcelona Way" by a guy called Professor Damien Hughes. Um, it's number one. It's, it's not a football book. It's on the business section of Amazon. It's been the bestseller there for six months or so. I am a little biased because Damien works for my company, <laughs> but I, his eleventh book, and he's a he's a dude, so he knows what he's talking about. But he rather cleverly analysed why Barcelona Football Club you know what, what what do they do culturally that businesses could learn from and 
he came up with an, an acronym called Barca, which is rather convenient. So, which is the nickname for Barcelona yeah. Football Club. So the B is a big picture and within which is behaviours. The A is arc of change, which more or less means how do you forecast obstacles and plan around them or how do you handle negative things when they happen? So the arc of change. Uh, R is repeating keystone habits. So those small things that we do every single day that can help us achieve our vision and mission. Uh, C is cultural architects. Um, now, a cultural assassin is somebody that uh, is a bit of a naysayer. Uh, we'll, we'll say no a lot or pick holes in things, whereas a cultural architect are people that really embody the culture and often um, are, are, you know, they don't. They're, they're really influential and quite infectious people without the high, without the hierarchy in the job title. But that's a really important component. And lastly, it's called authentic leadership, which is a little bit of a link back to what I mentioned earlier about the role modelling of senior leaders about their relationship with stress. That is a good example of authentic leadership. So, of, across the, the the Barca model, I would pick out two things that I think are easy wins, and that is behaviours. Behaviors, behaviors, behaviors. Damien will often say, "You cannot have a, a commitment culture," which is what the whole book is about. If you do not have behaviors, not only defined but embed, fully embedded in an organization, so uh, he will also have a strong opinion that values and how often do we see company values put on walls or in the lavatories and or even behind the reception desk in some companies. No one really connects with them. We don't really live by them. Um, but we, we, our behaviours are our values and actions. So you, know, you can uh, measure how you behave in an organisation. Uh, and regardless of your role or your, your job title, it is something that, you know, there's an equality to it. So the CEO should be able to behave in that way, as should a junior account manager. And critically, if somebody is not behaving in the way that you, you it, that is defined, you should be able to call them out on it and also call them in on it um, to say well done when they do. So the great companies I work for do have behaviours nailed and laid down, but they're a huge part of their processes. So things like how they recruit, they recruit against their behaviour. When they people join the company, they're onboarded against their behaviours. In people, you know, in people's one to ones and team meetings, the behaviours are often. Um, dictate how team meetings are rolled or how people are being asked to stretch and this kind of thing. So uh, identifying your behaviours and what, how you behave when you're really successful and doing it more of the time, I think is extremely rare. And it is my gift to this audience re- listening to this podcast that that is a, a, a big lever to pull to, to increase your culture, is defining what your performance behaviours are and that are unique to you and potentially offer you a bit of a competitor, competitive advantage as well. I think that's really interesting because so often you see values written down, published on a website, you know, this is who we are, this is our ethos. But when you're actually dealing with or working with an organization, you have a very different experience. So it's one thing defining what you want those values and those behaviors to be. It's a very other thing. Uh, to actually get them to be a living, breathing part of your organisation. So uh, that that I think is interesting. You were talking there about having those behaviours central to when people recruit as well. So it's getting it right from the very ground up, I suppose. As soon as you identify 
a candidate, then it's making sure that at that point they align with or can at the very least understand your behaviours and your values. Uh, otherwise, how are they going to kind of live and breathe that as they develop their career with you? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's worth just drawing you back to that crazy analogy of the sunflowers. It's, you know, this is a bit like the piece of bamboo that you tie the flower to to make it make it grow straight. That is, for me, behaviours is effectively the spine of a culture. And it is amazing how many companies have values that either people can't remember, don't connect with, or don't live by. And then there are some companies that have a special source, which is defining their performance behaviours that are unique to them. And they are flushed out and they expect people to behave like that all of the time. And they, they called in and called out when they're not. And that is a big, uh, I guess, lever to keep people on the straight and narrow in terms of mm, performance. Okay. So I'm going to put you on the spot a bit there uh, here and just say, who, you know, who have you seen, whether they're clients or not, who does this really, really well? Who can we, who can we look up to? Who can we aspire to try and uh, learn from who's doing this really, really well? Because I, I love that, um, that, that's this, that the behaviors and values of the spine of a culture is really nice. But who's doing this? Who do we need to aspire to be like? <laughs> well, it's easy to rattle off the big, you know, Silicon Valley companies. I will just quickly say I do think LinkedIn are excellent. I think it's an incredibly well-run corporation for a very large business. And I do think they, for a large organization, I think they make mincemeat of, of the whole behaviors piece. And I think they, that is a, they are an organization role model for corporations. But I also think as well, you know, for even small businesses, they're, you know, um, we work at M6, for example, and uh, Siobhan Brumwin, who has recently been voted the best uh, people professional by Campaign Magazine just last week. Um, you know, that they are not in the UK. They are a big-ish, well, medium-sized agency, but they're also, you know, they still feel like a startup, with, you know, and they will say that themselves, even though they're 10 years into their journey. But I think they've done a great job of just, just cracking on with it. Um, and uh, defining what their behaviours are and actually starting that journey and making them embedded into their culture. And they did it quite quickly. Um, I think uh, I think another company uh, that we work with is called We Are Social. I think um, they, again, have done a really good job of getting their senior leadership to buy into the importance of them, um, getting empowering their people to feed into what the behaviors could be and should be and again they're in they're in that part of their journey now of embedding them i think um that's a really interesting case study i think because i think they've just been acquired by a um a chinese owned uh, agency group haven't they so it'd be interesting to see how that's changed since they were acquired and whether that had much of an impact on their culture but it sounds like you're doing some work with them now that's helping them to to focus on their culture perhaps that's since the acquisition yeah, I mean, that was the, so this, yes, it's very much since the acquisition. So it's still, it's happened since. But I'll, I'll, I'll take another example just out of, out of sector from the market. We work with an executive, uh, an exec, executive search company in Brighton. Um, and they've only got 35 people and they, they have got their behaviors absolutely laid down. That's the thing. And they are culturally, I mean, such an amazing inspiration for any company with just 30 people in them, really. I know it's out slightly outside of the sector, but. This is not the preserve of large organizations. It is something very much that even a company yes. of nine people, my company's got nine people in, we have our, our behaviors laid down. So anyway, so it's something that we can all do, mainly because it, it doesn't need 
need them cost money. It's not it's not the kind of thing that costs money. It does take effort, will take a bit of time, can be transformational, doesn't require capital expenditure. It's more intellectual capital than capital capital, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Gary. That's it. Really interesting. There's some great advice and tips in there that I think we can take away. I've certainly learned a bunch of stuff there. But um, to to ask you as well, I don't know whether you we've talked about this before. But we have a community of marketing agency owners, and I mentioned to them that like I'm going to record a a podcast with you. Has anyone got any questions that they would love to put to to Gary? And a question came in that was, and I'll read it to you. It says, most employees leave due to eventual frustrations. How do you keep an open dialogue and make sure that you address any issues early on, especially with an expanding team? So I guess a lot of what we've talked about there with the culture and the behaviors there and, you know, looking at those emotional needs, that I guess that gives you the ability to have that open dialogue and that open culture, doesn't it? But is there anything you can build on from what we've already spoken about that answers that question a bit? Well, uh, the good uh, that's a great question. And hopefully in some patches, we've to some extent covered that a little bit already. But I, I'll probably add to that that statistically people join a company, but they leave a boss. Um, when you analyze exit interviews. And it's quite alarming, really, when you, when you think about that, because um, and one of, so, so I think that the role of the boss, I, the, 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 that kind of smacks me of, a, I guess, some kind of communication breakdown or relationship breakdown when that happens. And, and that is so avoidable uh, for, for everything that we've discussed already today. I, I think the thing that really springs to my mind, though, is where you know, I guess, what, what does feedback really mean? What does feedback culture really mean? And I, I think it's just worth bearing in mind potentially that uh, the word feedback is an engineering term, which originally came from the moon landings in uh, 1969. And, and really what, there are three things to bear in mind with, with that anecdote, which we can learn from in the, court, in, the, in, the, in the business world, which is, you know, feedback should always be with a goal in mind. So there's no point me saying to you, Andy, you know, I don't think you're very good at presenting. That's not helpful and it's offensive and it will upset somebody. Um, if, however, I say, you know, the goal in mind here is that we, we want to maintain an excellent relationship with the client, and I'd love you to consider presenting to them a little bit differently to help that client. That feedback suddenly becomes helpful. So a goal in mind is really important. Um, I think it should be two-way. So it should never just be exclusively one-way traffic between the boss and the employee. I think... Um, I think it's valid and encouraged to often say to to uh, people that you manage, what's the worst thing I could do to, to manage you? What, what would really upset you? Like, what could I stop? Or, or, or in, indeed, what could I do more of to, to continue helping you? Or, and have that regularly because people's needs change and situations change over the year, of course. That's very rare. So it could be, should be two-way. And uh, one of my favorite pieces is that it should be very regular. Uh, so in the, in the moon landings, uh, it was um, every 15 minutes they checked in with uh, one another to see where the accurate position was to keep on track to reach the moon. And it just, I find it amazing that, um, you know, so often I sit, it, it, companies will still have the, the good old fashioned annual appraisal or the biannual appraisal. And that's the only time we have a feedback conversation. But, you know, I, I would genuinely encourage anybody listening to this to have, I think, feedback anecdotally once a week and you know don't don't overthink it I mean, it could just be those little moments live at a desk or live in a meeting thank somebody for their contribution mm -hmm. so it only makes a great a great suggestion in a team meeting 
and it's a little bit out of character, I, I would just stop the meeting and take and just say, you know, um, Mary, that is absolutely stunning. Thank you for putting yourself out there. I really appreciate you doing that for us today. Thank you very much. That took me eight seconds to say that. And that's live feedback. And so little and often feedback is where it's at. And I think one would hope if you could embrace that. Um, and also some of the other things we talked about this morning, it's hopefully people, less people would leave because they might feel a little bit more inspired uh, and feel that psychological safety uh, to stay in an organization and flourish really yeah absolutely and it, and it is one of the big challenges of our industry is to you know not only to find but to retain talented people within your business and i think if people are looking at a lot of what you've talked about there um, th- there's a huge amount of work that can be done for as you said their time rather than money that will make a big difference to uh, performance of a, an agency or a, or a department so that's, that's really really valuable gary thanks thanks a lot for coming on and giving so much value here it's there's a lot there uh, there's a i've learned a, a ton of stuff and i'm sure the listeners will do too um i would love to just to close off really by asking you two things is one is you know where do you look for ideas and inspiration what kind of publications do you read what books do you love who who are the leading thinkers in this space and then lastly it would be great you know if people do want to pick up the conversation they do want your help to build out some of the ideas and the themes we talked about this morning how can they best uh, get in touch with you sure so yeah look i i think since i've become a coach i've discovered i'm a bit of a nerd for <laughs> learning generally and I, but I'm, I'm amazed how i find the most inspirational sources of insight don't come from the obvious places but in order for that to happen i need i know i need to have an open mind so um you know it could just be I don't know, a funny little sticker in a coffee shop. I'm, but if I'm open-minded to that tiny piece of insight, augmenting an existing piece of knowledge I already have, I find that quite helpful. But, you know, I, I think if I'm honest, I really love LinkedIn. I think for the content, I think content on LinkedIn can be very helpful. I, I use that a lot. Um, I, I try to get good book recommendations a lot from people I coach or and I, I follow up on those, and I, I'm a bit like a magpie. I think I skim read a lot of good business books. Um, but also, I, th- I think you can't beat uh, sometimes when I'm uh, up early before my children wake me up. I sometimes enjoy watching, uh, you know, listen to podcasts or TED Talk on, on YouTube. I think sometimes I find that really helpful just to watch a little five-minute video here and there. Um, but, you know, uh, just to round off that point as well, sometimes other people generally can offer – the best insight ever you just need to be open-minded to asking more curious incisive questions to people because uh you know they, they always represent the best learning for me <laughs> yeah absolutely I, I you know what? i agree with that entirely and a huge part of running this podcast is very selfish it's about me getting to talk to people like you to get some ideas and some thinking and to keep fueling uh, the fire as it were for me to make changes to make improvements within my business so it's great i I love talking to you i've really enjoyed talking with you gary it's been a fascinating conversation so if folks want to reach out to you they want to get in touch what's the best way to get hold of you well more than happy for anybody to connect with me on linkedin just gary cole there are a lot of gary coles make sure it's the right one uh hello Uh, (laughs) uh, but i I guess also just welcome to just drop me an email and i will happily answer any questions that you have and i'm always available for a cup of cup of tea or water or um so just email me at gary with one r at archipelago.co.uk and i'll be happy to help 
Gary, that's fantastic. Thanks again for joining us. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I hope that uh, I hope I can get you back on the show at some point to build on some of the themes we've started to talk about today. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.